You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. Again, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 27. Once you arrive there, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 through 27 says this. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning. Good morning. I want to welcome you here to Providence. My name is Court, and I'm the one, one of the pastors here at the church. And I'm just so glad that you made us a part of your week, especially if it's your first time here. I just want to say thanks so much for joining us. We'd love it if uh, you'd let us know that you made it out. One of the ways you can do that is by filling out one of the connect cards in the seat back in front of you. Um, like Ty said, we're in a sermon series working through the first three chapters of the book of Genesis. And I just want to say, check out the podcast if you haven't had a chance to be here for all the sermons or um, if it is your first time just jumping in, you can always check out the podcast. And and the reason I say that is uh, not just as a shameless plug, but but also because it kind of helps. There's a a storyline that we're building on and and some of the sermons, they they tend to run together in that way. Uh, So the big idea of this sermon series is this, the first three chapters of the Bible or the first three chapters of Genesis tell us a lot about how God designed the universe gives us the blueprints of life, particularly how to live a life of meaning and purpose and and hopefulness. And this morning, what I want to do is I want to piggyback on uh, Eric's sermon from last week where he focused on verse 26. And in particular, he talked about human beings being created in the image of God. And and I want to piggyback on that. And what the Bible does in Genesis is it actually starts to narrowly define that a little more. It starts with human beings... And then it starts to talk about gender and how male and female uniquely image God. And that's what I, my focus is. But I want to start by saying, uh, starting with the image of God helps us to, rem- to remember that male and female uh, are equal image bearers of God, both men and women. And, and this is essential because everything that, if you think about every mercy ministry or every mission, well, not every, but most mission ministries and mercy ministries in the church have everything to do with this verse. At Providence, an example might be Providence Orphan Care, which if you haven't been involved in our orphan care ministry, um, I want to tell you there's so much going on in that ministry. I got an email uh, last night from one of the team members, Marla Wartman, and and they're just doing so much. And and there's a lot of need. There there was a time where Providence Orphan Care was small and their their team didn't have as many needs. Now they have tons of needs for people that would, if they would like to volunteer, so you should check that out. But But the idea of Providence Orphan Care really has its root in this text, which is that every human being, no matter what age, no matter matter what color, no matter what ethnicity or socioeconomic background, every every person has value, dignity, and worth simply because they were created in the image of God. And therefore, we ought to fight for the justice of all human beings. If we see that there's inequity in the way that one human being treats another over and against 
uh, that person, then we should step up as Christians and say, that's not right. It shouldn't be this way. We should look at things like poverty or sickness or hurt or abuse, and we should say, this is not how God intended it to be. Therefore, we want to fight for this to be different. Why? Because human beings are created in the image of God. So if you think about tons of different good things that happen all over the world, but in particular in the church, they find their root here. And I want to say, second, this is really the focus of my sermon, is that we were not only created human beings in the image of God, but God created us. And what it means to be an image bearer means that we were created male and female, which means that we were designed in gender and that male and female means that we're uniquely different in some ways. So there's sameness about human beings and there's differences in human beings. I feel like this one's not so controversial, except it's become very controversial maybe in the last 10 years or so. I will say uh, two sides have had some tension for about a century now in the roles of male and female, but it hasn't been until about, excuse me, about 10 years ago or so that we started having tension around the idea of whether or not there's differences at all between men and women, right? I think everybody was okay for a long time about saying, yeah, of course, just by, there's differences, but when you start to define them, that's when you really step in it, right? And I'm going to try to do both. <laughs> so it's going to be a real delight. I've been working hard at it, and hopefully you guys will give me some grace. I want to give a couple of pointers, and then I'll pray. Um, I think that the reason there's been tension for about a century about the roles and defining them is twofold. One is there's a group that's very concerned about losing the truth. Very concerned about if you say that there's no differences and you don't try to define them, then, then what can happen is ultimately the denigration of society. And so this group says, let's, let's hold fast to the truth. Then there's another group that is very concerned about the abuses that have been evident both statistically and experientially from people, particularly men, who have held fast to the, quote, truth. So you have this group that says, hey, got a lot of people that are saying this is the truth and it's supposed to be glorious and it doesn't look glorious. It looks really bad. And not only looks bad, it is bad. And here's all of the reasons why it's bad and here's the stats on it. So they just kind of go at it. And, and, and what I would like to say is that Christians, we ought to be concerned about not losing the truth and be concerned about the error that comes from saying we're about the truth and then functionally actually denying it. Does this make sense? We ought to be concerned about both. The church has to be a place to tell the truth and it has to be a place to care and love people who have been hurt. And if we're not both of those, then I think that we're missing the mark of who God's called us to be. And so my encouragement to you this morning is twofold. Number one is listen to the Lord. Let's listen to God in his word and he has authority because here's the thing. My prayer is that we would run to the Lord and his word so that it's not just our best ideas of the way in which we should live our lives, but we look to his word for guidance. It's not just uh, whoever's got the most compelling argument, but it's, although I believe that the biblical argument is the most compelling, it's what does the word say? What has God said? Because if he's the author, then we should run to him about the way in which he's writing our story. And then secondarily, that we would listen to one another. Husbands, maybe after uh, this, this Sunday's sermon, it would be good for you to ask your wife questions and just try to listen well. Or wives, maybe it's to ask your husband questions and try to listen well, that we might gain some empathy and understanding to live according to the truth functionally, not just to hold to these ascertained truths on paper, but to really live it. And so my encouragement is let's listen in those two ways. And then most of all, uh, I'm going to pray shamelessly for myself that the Lord will help me to kind of thread the needle here and not screw it up, okay? So if you'll bow your heads, let me pray.
Father, thank you for your word. You haven't left us out without an anchor. You haven't left us just out floating around, not knowing who we are. But you've given us a, a, guy, a lamppost, a compass that points true north. Jesus, thank you that you're not only willing and able, but you're regularly and actively pursuing us. And that you long for us to know the truth about who we are in you and to make right all the wrongs that have happened in our soul. That you're so willing, Jesus, that you were willing to die for it. And Holy Spirit, thank you that you've promised to be here and be our teacher. And so I ask, would you give us ears to hear from you and then hopefully, Lord, from one another. And Lord, would you help me to listen to your voice and to be faithful, simply to point to the word and not to get in the way. And God, may we be better for it, not just as a church, but as a community. May we be better for it as, a, as families, individual families, and Lord, as moms and dads, husbands and wives, and sons and daughters, male and female. Help us to flourish, God, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So remember our two questions, and our two questions that we've been asking this whole series are these. What does it tell us about God, and what does it tell us about us? So this is going to be the shortest part of my sermon, but I think probably it is the foundational part. What does it mean, what does it tell us about God that we are created male and female? Well, here's a few. Number one, it's that God is uniquely imaged or represented in the earth by male and female. That the genders matter in the imago Dei, the doctrine of the imago Dei, that to, to be image bearers, it means that there's a uniqueness about male and female capacities, traits, inherent qualities that men and women possess uniquely. Or another way to put that might be that we can know more about God as we get to know more about the unique capacities, traits, and qualities that men and women possess. This is why marriage is such a glorious institution as you bring male and female together and the two become one flesh and now you get to know one another for the rest of your lives. And as you get to know that person more and more and their inherent qualities, hopefully what's happening is in their redemptive person, you're getting to know more about God because they're uniquely image bearers of God. Number two, another thing that tells us about God is that God found male and female to be essential in order to fulfill his purposes in the earth. So in the Bible, it says it like this. The only thing that was not good in the first five and a half days of creation, some of you know this, is what? For man to be alone. That's unique, isn't it? And every, you know, every wife has recognized that's probably true. You go out of town, things go awry. Right? That's a joke. But, you know, men to be alone is a bad thing. God said, this is not good. Why? This man is not going to be able to accomplish that which I have commissioned him to do until I can find a helper fit for him. Now, as a side note, I want to say, sometimes women, we cringe at this idea, or you might cringe at the idea of being called a helper. It's because you conjure up images in your head of what a helper might be. Do you know who's called the helper in the Old Testament more than any other character? Yeah, God is called our helper in the Old Testament. Later in the New Testament, you'll get that the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit is called the helper from Jesus. So the idea of God being our helper who comes and helps us, it reminds us, one, it honors the woman as she's called the helper, and two, it reminds us that this does nothing to do with inferiority or superiority. In fact, many times the helper can, can step in in a superior way. Moms, you do this all the time, and dads too, but moms, as you help your kids, you're stepping in in a 
superior way to help them, to help them learn, to help them grow, to help them understand, right? And you're the helper in that situation because you know that if you don't let them do it on their own and screw it up, then they're probably not going to be able to develop. So don't think helper and then conjure up images of inferior. That's not what the Bible shows. But instead, it says a helper fit for Adam or for man. Or another way to put that would be to complement that these two together, like a puzzle piece, fit uniquely together in order to accomplish the purposes for which God created human beings. Male and female, he created them for this purpose. And then in verse 28, you get the, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion. We're going to get into that call, but here's the thing. Notice from the very jump, you can't fill the earth, be fruitful and multiply without each other. It's going to require cooperation, and that is a euphemism because we have kids in the room. Right? From the very jump, you cannot fulfill that which God called you to do unless you do so together. Lastly, God loves both men and women and desires for them to flourish together in spiritual harmony. This is key. If your version of Christianity or faith gives you a God who is indifferent toward, toward women, you don't have the God of the Bible. If your vision of Christianity or faith gives you a God who doesn't care about the plights or harms of men, then you have a problem because that's not the God of the Bible, but you have in the scriptures a God who loves male and female, loves men and women, and longs for them to live in harmony and to flourish. That's the God that we serve, created us for that purpose. I wanted to read an excerpt from uh, a pastor, John Piper. He, he wrote a, well, what I found to be a pretty helpful um, a book. And at the very beginning, he, he lines out um, his experience growing up. And, and when I read it, I just thought this is great because it resonated with my experience. And hopefully it does with yours too, but he's talking about the roles of men and women and in particular in his home with his dad and his mom. Listen to this. He says, it's long, but hopefully it'll be good. When I was growing up in Greenville, South Carolina, my father was away from home about two thirds of every year. And while he preached across the country, we prayed, my mother, my oldest sister and I. And what I learned in those days was that my mother was omnicompetent. Mom handled the finances, paid all the bills, and she dealt with the bank and the creditors. She once ran a little laundry business on the side. She was active on the park board, and she served as the superintendent of the intermediate department of our Southern Baptist Church. She managed real estate holdings. She taught me how to cut the grass, splice electrical cord, and pull Bermuda grass by the roots, to paint the eaves, and to shine the dining room table with a chamois, to drive a car, and to keep french fries from getting soggy in the cooking oil. She helped me with maps and geography. She showed me how to do a bibliography and work up a science project on static electricity. And she helped me to believe that Algebra 2 was possible. She dealt with contractors when we added a basement. And more than once, she had a shovel in her hand. And it never occurred to me that there was anything that she couldn't do. I heard one time that women don't sweat, they glow. That's not true. My mother sweat. It would drip off the end of her long, sharp nose, and sometimes she would blow it off when her hands were pushing the wheelbarrow full of peat moss, or she would wipe it with her sleeve between the strokes of a swing blade. Mom was strong. I can remember her arms even now. They were strong and bronze in the summertime. It never occurred to me to think of my mother and father in the same category. Both were strong. Both were bright. Both were kind. Both would kiss me. Both would spank me. Both were good with words. Both prayed with fervor and loved the Bible. But unmistakably, my father was a man and my mother was a woman. They knew it and I knew it. And it was not mainly a biological fact. It was mainly a matter of personhood and relational dynamics. When dad came home, he was clearly the head of the house. He led in prayer at the table. He called the family together for devotions. He got us to Sunday school and worship. 
He drove the car, guided the family to where we would sit. He made decisions about going to Howard Johnson's for lunch, led us to the table, called the waitress, paid the check. He was the one that we knew we would reckon with if we broke a family rule or if we were disrespectful to mother. And these were the happiest times for mom. Oh, how she rejoiced in having daddy home. She loved his leadership. Later, I learned that the Bible called this submission, but at the time, I didn't know. Since my father was gone most of the time, mother used to do most of the leadership things in the house. It never occurred to me that leadership and submission had anything to do with superiority and inferiority. It didn't have to do with muscles and skills. It was not a matter of capability and competency. It had to do with something that I could have never explained as a child. And I've been a long time coming and understanding that it's a part of God's great goodness in creating us male and female. It had to do with something very deep. I know the specific rhythm of life that was in our home is not the only one that's good, but it was a good one. And there were dimensions of reality and goodness in it that ought to be there in every home. And indeed, they ought to be there in varying ways in all mature relationships between men and women. When I read that, I really appreciated it because it resonated with my experience particularly growing up, that there were things that I didn't know how to name, but they, they, they tended to make sense to me. And, and now when you read the scriptures in design, it, it, it's, oh, that's the way in which God designed it in the scriptures. There were also things that didn't make sense to me that I knew were wrong. And I didn't know why I knew that they were wrong, but I just could sense that that's not how that ought to be. And then you go into the scriptures and you find that there. You see, what we know here from Genesis chapter one, verse 26 and 27 is two things. One is that male and female are equal in essence and in dignity and value and in worth. This is just Christian doctrine. It has always been Christian doctrine. There is no superiority or inferiority between men and women in that dignity and value and worth in essence. But we also see that there is a distinction between them, and that's important. And it's not just important that we say there is a distinction, but here's where I'm going to try to step in the mud, and that is it's important that we try to do our best to biblically define what that means. And here's why that's important, because if we can't look at our kids when they come to us and say, Mommy, what should, how do I become a godly woman? If we can't tell her, then woe is us. Or if your son comes to you and says, how do I grow up to be a godly man? If we can't tell him, then woe is us. We have to be able to point them in some direction. And here's the thing, the Bible's pointed us in a direction and woe be to us if we don't point them in the direction the Lord's pointed us because there's life there. And here's the thing, culture can be, and regularly is, very fickle about tons of things. And so we can't just grab wholesale, hook, line, and sinker, whatever the culture says and say, yeah, that might be it. Even if what they're pointing out might be, they do a great job at diagnosing a problem. Here's my fear is that maybe they do a poor job of figuring out the reason why and then finding a solution. And isn't this true of all things? I mean, you could find people in your workplace or maybe even in your home or maybe even in the church where they're really good at figuring out what problems are whenever they walk in. Ooh, everything that's wrong. But it's a lot harder to do the work of figuring out why it happened and how to fix it, isn't it? Or you could just try to make a simple solution about it and just say, let's just, you know, quote unquote, throw the baby out with the bathwater. Let's fix it by just cutting this off. And I think that that's actually harmful. So what I'm gonna try to do is work hard to define what is it. And I gotta use some other parts of the biblical narrative to do so. So, Here we go. The first one is this. I'm going to start with masculinity. Biblical masculinity is a sense of benevolent responsibility to tend God's creation, provide for and protect others, and express loving, sacrificial leadership in particular contexts prescribed by God's word. Now, I'm going to try to break those down to the best of my ability. Benevolent responsibility means that that man ought to 
take on his shoulders the responsibility for tending God's creation and that it might flourish. That's, he needs to hold that and he needs to be willing to protect and willing to provide, willing to do what's necessary in order for this thing that God has called the, the cultural mandate for it to move forward, that God ought to carry that, or man ought to carry that on his shoulders. And in particularly subscribed ways in the Bible, namely the home and in the church, he ought to exercise loving and sacrificial leadership in doing so. Now, here's the thing. When I say that, you know, sometimes we might cringe, but I think that all of us, at least intrinsically, know that most of what I just said is, is pretty basic. Like, for instance, if you think of, like, the story of the Titanic, right? It's a famous movie. Like, uh, it's a great, it's an awful story if you think about it, and then it became, like, a great movie. Kind of odd, but... Nonetheless, you know, Leo DiCaprio, Wright, and Rose, and it, it used to be the, the top grossing movie of all time until I think like the movie with the blue people came out and then that, you know, jumped it. And then anyway, Avengers may have jumped that, but it, for a long time, that was the main movie. And, and it's an interesting story, right? Because it's about this big boat that's, that's built and it's gonna take its uh, voyage across the, the ocean. And, and you got this class warfare that kind of happens in the story of the Titanic. You got the upper class who's up in the boat and then you got the lower class. And, you know, it's kind of like the Montagues and the Capulets in some way, except for, you know, Montagues and the Capulets are both rich. This is not that way. You get Rose, who's very wealthy, and then you get uh, Jack, who's not wealthy, and he just kind of won his way onto the boat, and yet there's love, and there's this interesting love story that goes on, but you know what's lost in it is some pretty basic stuff, which is actually true to the historical facts about the Titanic, namely that when the boat starts going down, guess who gets on the lifeboats first? Anybody remember? Women and children. You know, and most of the time, nobody jumps in there. I know some, some of us want to be contrarians. There's at least one person here who goes, well, I would have not. Listen, most of us are just like, that's a good thing. In fact, it's why when Billy Zane, if you don't know who that is, Google it. When Billy Zane jumps onto the boat, right, he's, the, he's Rose's, uh, Rose's supposed, like, set up for marriage, and he's kind of a, you know, a punk. He jumps on the boats and pushes the women off and then, you know, cuts the rope. Everybody's like, oh, this guy, right? All of us intrinsically go, what a squirrel. We all hate him. Why do we do that? Because he should have stayed back. You know what's interesting in the historical narrative is it didn't matter if it was upper class, it didn't matter if it was lower class, all the men in both classes did not get on those lifeboats. Historically. Why? And it's because there's this innate, not just biological, but it's in the design of God. That there's this innate responsibility that men bear to say, I'm supposed to protect I'm supposed to provide. I'm going to help the kids and the women to get on the boats to preserve life. In fact, what you'll find if you go through human history is this idea that men are expendable in relation to women and children. They will step in. And, and listen, this is not, you know, craziness. This is true of war. And it's true in your own household. Hopefully when there's a burglar in the night or something, you know, shakes, hopefully your husband doesn't go, baby, go check that out. <laughs> right? If that's happened to you, just come around, you know, talk to me after gathering. We'll talk to your husband. That's a problem. Baby, did you hear that? Yeah, I heard that. You go check that out. I'll take care of the kids. No. Man, hopefully you go, you, go, you, got, you got a plan in place of some sort. Like with my, and listen to me. I know my wife can beat up a lot of dudes. Some of you in here, I'm sorry. She could probably take you. But in my house, I'm going to check it out. Now, she's got a whole other plan because my wife's a little bit crazy of what she would do if they got past me, and I would not want to be that guy. <laughs> but nonetheless, the plan still kind of stays the same. And I think we all understand that. Here's the thing. The stats kind of hold this out, too, to be true. Men hold a much higher percentage of dangerous jobs. 91% of workplace deaths are men. Men are overwhelmingly the majority of, of those who are killed in combat. For instance, the Vietnam War, 58,000 men were killed, eight women were killed. Men are the majority of the incarcerated in society. 
Why do guys go to jail more than ladies? Because both biologically and in disposition, they are more aggressive. And when things go wrong, they go wrong. Now, sin enters into that. It creates a whole mess and a slew of problems, but you can't change the biological design of this. And listen, you can go to the stats and you can find out. I'm not just making this up. This is actually statistically true. They're more aggressive. Now, that in God's design is a good thing for protection. It's a bad thing for abuse. You walking with me? So it's something that's you shouldn't say, we want them to be less aggressive. It's why I have a problem sometimes with the way in which we, we teach our young boys. It's like, oh man, we don't want them to be too aggressive. We want them to be too hyperactive. Well, yes and no, we want them to be respectful. We don't want to just completely crush that which is actually a design. Because later on, I would like for my son to be aggressive if someone was trying to hurt my wife or my daughter when I'm not around. I want him to kind of be that hyperactive, ready to harm. For good, not for evil. Men also seem uniquely predisposed to a deathly kind of despair. Suicide rates are 75% among men. Substance abuse, addiction, and homelessness is much higher among men. Why? Because whenever you, you have a man who loses his purpose in the world, they tend to lend themselves towards much more uh, deathly types of despair. Um, whether that be killing themselves or whether that be uh, substance abuse or whether that be just living on the streets. Um, there's actually statistics that have been done and studies that have been done that one way that we can help therapists might help men is not especially young men therapists help young men by giving them more responsibility not less <laughs> your grandpa taught you this by saying uh, a truck that's loaded down drives straighter <laughs> yeah that's true of men and it's actually been found out that's a way in which therapy can help is by not taking and relinquishing responsibility from young men because then like like a wild horse they tend to do stupid things but if you give them more responsibility that they actually tend to thrive. Why do I, I don't think the causes of this are victimization of men. I'm not saying that. In fact, I'm saying the statistics say the exact opposite, that, that in fact, divorce and separation have more of a cause than, than, than male victimization in some of this dysfunction that happens in men. Now, that just proves the design because it means that when male and female relationships go bad, that doesn't only affect the, the daughter, it affects the son in grave ways. Sometimes we think the fatherlessness with young women is what leads to a lot of, you know, promiscuity or whatever. And whether that's true or false doesn't change that we're ignoring the fact that the nuclear family also affects young men, tragically, when relationships go awry. It's not like if we were just to say that male and females are completely the same, it would fix everything. Actually, the statistics say that's not true. It makes it worse. Okay, but what about femininity? And listen, I'm, I'm really grazing the surface, aren't I? I mean, there's so much to be talked about. We got a lot more to go. We got to talk about headship in a few weeks. We're talking a lot about this, okay? But I'm just grazing the surface. What about biblical femininity? Well, biblical femininity is displayed in a gracious disposition to cultivate life. Now, I want to really hammer that down, but I'm going to continue the definition. To cultivate life, to help others flourish, and to affirm, receive, and nurture strength and leadership from worthy men, underline that, in particular contexts prescribed by God's word. So there are particular contexts where worthy men are called to lead, namely the home and in the church, and that women's call is to affirm that and say, that's true, it's good, I want to receive that, I want to, I want to be a part of that. But that in particular, if it's not worthy men that lead, then it tends to lead toward abuse. And so that goes wrong. We've seen how that can go wrong, but it doesn't change the design is good. Also, I want to make the case here, like in the Bible, it says that Eve gets her name after the fall, but that Eve is called the mother of all of the living. This is before she ever bears a child. That's really interesting, isn't it? Called the mother of all the living before she has a baby. Well, what does that mean? It means there's something 
It gives us indication that femininity has innately motherly qualities that are not contingent upon childbearing. And that females ought to lean into that motherly nature given, them, given to them by God, even if they don't have biological children. That actually this is a design thing. God made them. Now, think about this for a second. What is a motherly qualities? Well, if there's anything that I can say about moms, moms help life flourish in every way. That's what they do. Think about the things that mothers do. I mean, from the very jump of carrying a child in their womb, in their body, and and helping to nourish this child all the way up until you boot them out of your house, hopefully at 18. What do moms do? Tons of things. Moms have so many jobs. They can be a teacher. They can be a counselor. They can be a disciplinarian. They can be a, 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 you know, the real estate mogul for the house. They can be tons of things. But what do they do? Primarily, they help life flourish. And that's, in, that's incredibly unique because it does, what the Bible's saying is that is irrespective of whether or not women actually have biological children or children at all, that women particularly mother. And that's what they offer to the world. I say that because in the Bible, very controversial text that many people fight about, but I don't think you can have any controversy over this. Deborah is the only female judge in the entire Bible. And you know what the Bible says about Deborah? It calls her in chapter number six, the mother of Israel. Interesting, isn't that? It didn't say that what Deborah needed to do was become more manly in order to lead. It said that she actually used all of her feminine qualities to lead. It's really interesting. God doesn't say that what we need to do is become more like each other, but that we should lean more into the unique design that he has given for us, each of us. Now, here's the thing. Here's some stats for women. Uh, and, and, and listen, I, I, I grabbed these. Uh, I, I think you could probably find a lot of other stats, but these are kind of, um, these are stats that I believe are more hard to contend with. You can't really say that these aren't true because there's many statistics that back up what I'm about to say. Uh, women typically, on average, are more compassionate and considerate of others' well-being. And by and large, they tend to express that compassion in a more nurturing and maternal way. This is uh, many studies that have done cross-culturally. Uh, and listen, some cultures are different, but, it, but the variations are, are very small. And for the most part, women tend to be more caring about human life and and particularly people's well-being, and they exhibit that in compassionate ways, nurturing ways. Now, here's the thing. It's why I think that many times what we'll find is that, uh, for instance, our Providence Orphan Care team right now, and I'm not, I'm not contending for this to stay this way because I think men need to be a part of that. I need to lead in that. But it is predominantly female-led. And it's probably one of the most um, well-led and, and probably one of the most profound ministries that we have to offer as far as outreach is in our church. And here's why. It's a group of women that have got together and are really passionate about pushing the darkness back in inequalities among children being raised without parents. Just, they're killing it. They're doing so many amazing things in the community. I got an email, like I said, last night. It's like 10 pages long talking about all the things that are happening that I didn't know were happening. And the only thing that's not there is any dudes. And here's the thing. I think it's because women innately saw a problem. It, it, it resonated with them at their very soul level and engaged with the issue. Now, having said that, there's some other statistics that are kind of tough, and I hate that they're true, but I have to read them because they are. Women are also more likely to be physically abused, raped, or murdered domestically by their partner. I read this one, and this one's interesting. Men are actually uh, shamed online and publicly, publicly embarrassed more often. It's very slight. I thought that was interesting, but check this out. Women, by and large, are stalked by online predators, physically threatened online, and subject to sustained harassment more frequently. That is irre irrefutable. And why? 
And I think sometimes what we would say and what the culture says, well, if we just made everything equal, just made male and female the same and there was no distinction, this would stop. And I would say, no, it would not stop. It would probably increase. Because what's lacking is not that we just, you know, if we could just fix it with equality and sameness, what's lacking is that good men are saying nothing. Good men should stand up to bullies. Good men should say, you don't talk to women that way. You ought not treat her that way. You ought to treat her as an image bearer of God. You, and, and good men lead by platforming women, by giving them more opportunities, by, get, by, by being a part of helping them to help others flourish. So if you just say, well, no, what we need to do is basically make men and women the same, what I think you would find is even more abuse because the, the evil men would use their very biological and innate sense of aggression and strength to abuse women more. I think what we should do is lean more into God's design and actually call men to be the godly men they're called to be. Now, having said that, I think the Bible makes that case. And I think there's a danger to hostility that's existing between men and women that I'm afraid some of us are unconcerned with. We desperately need the cooperation of men and women who are committing to push, pushing back darkness in the world with the light of Jesus. If we lose this cooperation, we are losing a battle that is essential. We need to cooperate. And for thousands of years, men and women have cooperated to this end. It's why you're sitting here. Don't ever forget that. We sit here today because men and women have cooperated to this end. And I will say that all of the good that we experience is because they're pushing back the darkness. We live in a sinful fallen world. And that fallen world is looking to demolish and denigrate human beings. I think about it and I think of uh, Adam and Eve set in the garden next to each other to go out and subdue and fill the earth and have dominion over it. And God sends them out to do this great and glorious work side by side, right? And yet what we think about that, we don't think about often in America, we got all this domesticated world around us, but think about the Congo. The Congo is not domesticated at all. If you try to walk through the Congo with you and your wife, I'm just going to tell you it's going to go poorly for you. There might be some animals in there you've never even discovered that would devour you. It's because the world itself is working against the man and the woman because of sin in order to do the work that God's called us to do. And I think what we do in a very domesticated society is we forget the very reason it's domesticated in the first place, and it's because men and women cooperate in order to make it such. And if we're not careful, we would divide one against another. And that battle is a losing battle. Or as the word of God says, if the foundations be destroyed, what shall the righteous do? It is very foundational to embrace this as truth. Or as a gal named Mary Cassian said, she said, God's design for gender is not only right, it's also beautiful and good. Knowing Christ gives us the freedom to step into the fullness and joy of who God created us to be. He created us male and female. We cannot know ourselves, experience wholeness of personhood, or truly bring him glory outside of this God-ordained context. Amen. So why does it matter so much? And I'll close with this. Well, it matters because where we see the wholesale embrace of God's design for masculinity and femininity, we also see human flourishing. And where we see that rejected, suffering, abuse, and death inevitably follow. Listen to me. If you're like, you know what, Court? I don't agree because I've seen toxic masculinity and bad male leadership, and that's actually where I see death abuse. And here's what I want to say to you. I include forms of toxic gender worldview and behavior in the rejection of what God has designed. I'm including that. I'm lumping that in. In other words, a man who says that he's following the word of God and then abusing his wife on the side is a rejection of God's design. It is not God's design. A man who abuses his authority in such a way that he would, he would try to distance himself from his own sin and justify it is rejecting God's design. He's not embracing it. And I don't care what his bio on his Twitter handle says. I don't care if it says 
PhD next to his name or pastor so-and-so. He's rejecting God's design. But where we embrace God's design, there's human flourishing. There's life. Here's the thing. I, I have to address this because it's something cultural and, and it's important. This used to be called, uh, you know, 10 to 15 years ago, and it still is to many psychologists, gender dysphoria, but now it's called transgender movement. And I, I mention this in love because I, I care, and, and one way to care is to try to speak the truth in love. And the statistics say that transgender youth are up to 13 times as likely to develop a mental health condition requiring treatment in their life. 41% of transgender youth reported an attempted suicide. That's up and over against 1.6% of the general population. One-sixth of transgender youth drop out of school due to harassment or feeling excluded. The suicide rates among transgender youth increase dramatically with sexual reassignment surgery. That is a euphemism. It is absolutely astronomical. Part of the reasoning for this is the prefrontal cortex region of the brain doesn't reach full maturation until one reaches their mid to late 20s. This is the part of the brain that regulates emotions, impulse control, and decision-making. Puberty is an important part of the maturation process as sexual hormones become more fully developed, which parallels brain development. In other words, when we do not speak the truth in love to our children, it is, no, it is and forgive me for this analogy, but it's, it's equatable. It's no different than me telling my son the reason that at five years old he can't drive my truck is because his brain doesn't allow him to drive my truck in safety. He doesn't know when to stop. He doesn't know when to go. He doesn't know when to turn. He doesn't know when to turn his headlights on. All he thinks is that fast is good. And that is dangerous not only to him but to, to everyone around him. And if we look at our children as they're growing up before the prefrontal cortex of their brain is even developed, as the hormones are raging and we tell them we have no direction for you as to what gender you are, you are harming them. I say it out of love. I say it out of care because we should be able to point them somewhere. If we have no compass for them, we're failing them. The National Institute of Health cites a study where researchers found a high frequency of traumatic experience within the first 10 years of life for those who struggle with gender dysphoria. In 2013, a high percentage of insecure attachment, 70% was found in the sample of 50 adult transsexual individuals. In a recent study, they found a high percentage of unresolved disorganized states of mind, 50%. A considerably high, high percentage of secure uh, patterns, 39%. Moreover, 66% of the individuals had a traumatic childhood experience relating to the loss of an attachment figure, physical or sexual abuse. Trans women compared to men, one, were more likely to be neglected by both parents. Two, had more, involve, had more involving rejecting and physically and psychologically abusive fathers. Number three, suffered more frequently from an, a loss of early of a father. On the other hand, trans men uh, over and against women were more often victims of intense rejection, neglect, and early separation from their dads. Number two, had more psychologically abusive moms. And number three, prematurely experienced more losses of close relatives and friends. These are real people with real lives who've experienced real hurts. And what we do to that is come in and try to bring the truth and love and the grace of Jesus Christ to minister to the heart of hurt. But we can't then not give a compass toward a way of healing and affirm a way of death. And I'm not just saying a way of death theologically. I'm saying it statistically. The statistics say it's a way of death 10 to 15 times more likely for these young people that they'll take their own life. 
If the foundations be destroyed, what shall we do? I was in my backyard and, and I was, for a few weeks we would walk and my wife always notices things that are wrong in the yard before I do. It's probably cognitive dissonance or whatever, but she told me that there's flooding underneath our, the new AC that I put in and it's a little mini split. And so there's bull rock there and the sprinklers would come up and it would flood. It used to be a flower bed there, but now that's kind of useless. The sprinklers just flood the sidewalk and it's really no, it's, it's not a point of, you know, belaboring the point, but I needed to fix it. I needed to get them to stop working. So I started digging. And so I start digging and I'm about chest deep in our backyard and, you know, I see where the pipes are going. Okay, they're going here and I'm, start, I'm starting to piece together where the source of the water is. And so I think in my head, if I just, you know, there's two pipes here. If I just cut the pipe off right here, that will eliminate the water flow. And then the, the rest of the, the sprinklers that go this way, it'll be just fine because there's the source and this is how they're all designed and yada, yada, yada. Needless to say, I made the cut. And, you know, I turned the sprinklers on and bam, it fixed the problem. There's no more water underneath there. It's not flooding. And it wasn't until... You know, three months later when I realized a fourth of my lawn was scorched that I recognized that I had also cut the source to the rest of the water to the fourth of my lawn that the pipes continued going. And the problem is not my solution for the sprinklers underneath the bull rock. The problem was that I didn't do enough digging to figure out that the source of the water continued on. And my fear is that many of us, if we're not careful, will think it's just a one-cut issue. If we just cut here to fix the problem, and maybe you'll see the problem be fixed for a short period of time. And then what's gonna happen is that later on, you're gonna realize you cut the source to something that was so vital about your humanity. You'll start seeing scorched earth parts of your soul and wondering why. And here's the thing, it's, it's so much more, it's such a, such a bigger deal than just your lawn, it's your life. It's your kids, it's our families. It's the very fabric of society. You know, my lawn, I could try to seed it and water it by hand and maybe it'll come back to life. But what happens when we do it in the most formative years of our children's lives? The studies say in those formative years that it's hard, very difficult with mental plasticity to go back on it. Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ that he does not follow those codes and that he can do what we can never do with therapy and teaching. But friends, why not avoid it altogether? My prayer for us is that as we listen and consider and lean into God's truth, that we would have a vision for masculinity and femininity together. So please do that with me. What would it look like, men, to provide loving, sacrificial, protective leadership in your homes? To own that sense of responsibility and stop neglecting it. Don't blame anybody else. Don't blame your wife. Don't blame your upbringing. Don't blame society. Don't blame politics. Don't blame your boss, but own it and lead, what would that look like? What would it look like for women to cultivate life, not just in their home, but in the church and in the world, to lean into those motherly qualities all across, and not to wait until we're married to do so, but to lead in every way, and to receive the leadership from your husband as a gift. What would it mean for single women to lean into their God-given qualities? Single men to lean into their God-given qualities, not waiting until marriage, but pushing back darkness in the world right now. What if men were protectors in our community and contributors in our society? If men were life, or if women were life givers in the world and if they stood up for justice in the lives of their neighbors? If men and women were committed to making disciples of the whole world for the glory of Jesus, a community of men and women who could answer the question to their kids about what it means to grow up and be a man and a woman committed to living their lives by God's design and opening up their lives to a world who might not know what that means. Well, what my thought is, is if we had a vision of that, we would be really close, not perfect, but we'd be really close to the vision that God has for his church. 
And hear me on this. The gospel, if it's anything, is an anchor to the soul for those who are going through an identity crisis. If you're sitting here and you're saying, you know what, Court, that's me. I struggle often with knowing who I am. I want you to know you're in a safe place because every human being, you are the rule, not the exception. We all struggle with who we are. And thanks be to God that our Lord Jesus has come to give us an answer. He's come to speak life. He's come to give us a new name and a new identity to help us rediscover who we were created to be. Jesus comes in and tells us, you're mine. Son, daughter, come with me and I'll tell you about who you are. He doesn't leave us out there trying to guess. And, and even better, he doesn't do what the culture tells you to do, which is to just try really hard to define it for yourself. That is damning news. Go to, you know, go to college and hopefully figure it out. No, Christ has given you a word about who you are rooted and grounded. And here's the thing. Jesus alone can speak those authoritative words to your heart. I can't do, I I have spoken authoritatively, right? But I can't speak those authoritative words, but he can. Here's the better news. Andy's willing. When we come to him in our brokenness and our sin, he exchanges it all. He exchanges all of it for a new name and a crown all of this mess that we have about not knowing where we are, and he gives us identity. He's so committed to this, friends, that he did what had to be done to eliminate the foe that gives us all the confusion, sin. Died to eradicate it. Bled so that we would no longer be in the fog about what we are and who we are. And my prayer for us is that we would lean into that, that we would incline our ear and ask God, Tell me who I am. Because what I believe, because from experience, is that he always is faithful to answer. If you'll stand to your feet, I'll pray for us. Father, I'm wholly inadequate to cover this topic. And yet you have a way of qualifying those who know that. So Holy Spirit, we invite you now, would you graciously speak the truth to our hearts? If there are those under the sound of my voice who wrestle with this, God, would you solidify who they are in you? From the most complex to the most simple truth about who they are, would you speak, Jesus, and bring a foundation? And Holy Spirit, would you help the men in this room to embrace their call to be loving, sacrificial leaders in their house? Would you help the women under the sound of my voice to reject the lies that God's design is hindering in any way or chaining or restrictive, but instead help them to experience the freedom that is in you, my God? to flourish underneath that freedom. And Lord, I ask for providence in particular to help us to be a lighthouse to the world. That we were not only a place that's a beacon of truth, willing to say the tough things, but let us be a hospital for those who are broken. Let us be reminded of our own brokenness so that we can open our arms and not just speak harsh truths, but welcome those who have been hurt. Bring the good Samaritan parable to us, Lord. that the man broken on the side of the road just needed to hear, needed to experience love before he heard the truth. Would you give us that? 
And as we sing and worship, Lord, would you change us? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.